I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When Trevor Noah shocked fans by revealing he would be stepping down as host of The Daily Show last month, this is how he began his announcement. Before we go, I was was chatting to Roy Wood Jr. uh, yesterday when we finished uh, the show. And he reminded me that it has been seven years since we started The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Yeah, this week is our anniversary. And one of the, one of the overriding feelings I, I, I found myself experiencing throughout the night and, and even today waking up was, was a feeling of gratitude. You know, Ronnie, like the journey we've been on together has been wild. You know, Roy, you know, all the correspondents, everyone. There's so many people who who make this thing come together. And I want to say thank you to the audience for an amazing seven years. It's been wild. It's been been truly wild. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. And this week, I am so excited to welcome back on the podcast the man who Trevor was talking about in that clip, Roy Wood Jr. Roy, who was first on this podcast about a year and a half ago and is one of my absolute favorite stand-up comedians, joined The Daily Show right alongside Trevor Noah in the fall of 2015. So this is a big moment for him as well. And not just because his name has popped up on a lot of lists of potential successors to The Daily Show throne. After Roy did a really funny bit with Trevor on the show a couple of weeks ago about his apparent role in the host's decision to leave, I couldn't wait to invite him back on this show to talk all about how he's dealing with all of it. Of course, we also got into lots of other topics, including how he's feeling about stand-up these days and his thoughts on various news stories that have been dominating headlines in the run-up to the midterm elections. This was a really fun one, so let's get into it. Here's me with Roy Wood Jr., all right. Well, it's great to have you back, Roy. I'm, I'm, it's great to see you. How you doing? How you been, man? I, you know, I've been all right, you know? Yeah, it's busy time. A little crazy. A little crazy. You know what's <laughs> weird? Like, even your hesitation right now, like, people don't know what to say to me, like, with The Daily Show, because they're like, Travis, Is it good? so how you, how you, are you okay? <laughs> are you sad? Are you scared? Are you going to host? <laughs> what's going on, man? Look, yeah, you're you're getting ahead of all the questions. Um, well, th- that is really why I wanted to have you back right now, because it's this huge moment of transition on The Daily Show. Late night as a whole, low key. Yeah, yeah. I've spoken to a few people behind the scenes at the show who really didn't know Trevor was leaving until he announced it that day. Um, yeah. When did you find out that this was happening? I found out when y'all found out. Yeah? I was, it, it, I'll was. i tell you the exact moment I found out. I was at the News and Doc Emmys. Uh, for a doc that I EP oh, uh, nice. that was that was nominated. Shout out to the Neutral Ground and CJ Hunt. And I like it was downstairs at this spot in Times Square, so you're not really getting a cell phone signal. And I come up topside to use the bathroom, like about seven o'clock. And I think the Variety article, or the Deadline article, was like 
6.22 p.m. Like, it was like... It was right after the taping, the, probably, yeah. The steam was still coming off of the article, fresh out the oven. And I'm like, what <laughs> the fuck is going on? And then someone, hey, Roy, your category's up in the next break. You got to get back down inside uh, into the auditorium. <laughs> so I find out Trevor's leaving. Ten minutes later, I find out I don't win an Emmy. And then I'm just sitting. <laughs> sitting with that sitting there's there's a great picture of me and cj hunt and cj is a former daily show um segment producer uh, field producer and i hadn't told cj yet and there's a picture of us clapping like for some some for something some shit that's going on and cj is smiling and i'm just fucking straight faced <laughs> <laughs> Just like, clapping with a straight face. It's like I walk back in that room. No one else in the room. No, no one has cell phone coverage down there. And it's like I'm the only person who knows the asteroid is coming when everyone <laughs> goes back upstairs. Yeah, so it was, it was a pretty big shock. Um, you know, I didn't see it coming at all. Um, you know, he's been there seven years, and as you, as he talked about in that in that um, announcement that he made. Yeah. It came out, you know, he, he talks about having this conversation with you about seven years. Um, so I want to actually, I want to play the the clip of the bit that you did with Trevor um, last week. Uh, and then, um, and oh, then yeah. we can First talk about it. First time back after the announcement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'll be honest, man. I'm scared to talk to you right now. Because last time you and I had a conversation, you, you decided to leave the show. Shouldn't even be talking to you. You liable to leave during the next commercial break. We're probably talking too much right now. No, no, that's not true, Roy. That's not true. And then why you bring my name into it when you quit? <laughs> you gonna leave the show? Leave the show. But you started the you started the the, the, the shit last week. I was talking to Roy Wood. You, you could have just said, "Bitch, I'm gone." That's all you had to say was, "I'm gone, bitch. I'm out." And you didn't have to drag my name into it. Now everybody on my Twitter yelling at me thinking that it's my fault that you decided to leave the show. And it's not my fault when the truth of the matter, you was out the night before with doing Lupita, and you was out there in the streets with that singing No, girl. Roy, Roy, that, I, that is not how it happened. That is not, please do not believe anything you read in the tabloids, Roy. Don't, don't believe it. And then you don't came in here, and then you set me up, you talked to me, because you knew you was going to step down after you had the conversation with me. Step down from the show. Didn't tell nobody. Didn't even tell Ronnie. Ronnie was standing right. Look what you did to Ronnie. Look at Ronnie's face. <laughs> he didn't know. Ronnie didn't know. I've never seen an Asian this confused in my life. So, dude, here's the thing. That was literally, he made the announcement on Thursday. That clip was from the Monday when we came back on air. That was like the yeah. first time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Air. And... It was a little bit of, yeah, there's a little bit of truth in it. I was like, you didn't tell, you didn't even tell Ronnie. <laughs> like, Ronnie was just out yeah, there. Yeah, you uh, you put up the picture of Ronnie Chang uh, looking just as shocked as everybody else. Was that your idea to uh, to address it in that bit when you in that first show back? I came in and they're like, well, you're gonna do the segment with Trevor, and we're going over the stories like we normally do for the traffic and, and like the wall monitor stuff that we do with the quote traffic report. It's just a place for the correspondence to. Yeah. It's never about the traffic. Yeah, it's just about here's my opinion on the issues that we've been discussing. It's kind of it served as a different delivery vehicle for what we used to do with the desk chats. You know, with what Lewis Black still does so well. So, the more we're coming up with these stories, I'm like. Like me and the writers, like I'm like I just have to. He drug my name into it, and I was joking, <laughs> but it was kind of true. Like you know, people on Twitter were playfully blaming me for Trevor stepping down. If you'd never said seven years to Trevor, he would have never. And I was like, 
Yo, we have to talk about this. I'm sorry. (laughs) So what what was that real conversation that the two of you had about seven years? It was fucking three sentences. It wasn't (laughs) like, it's not like I pulled him to the side. Hey man, I just want you to know the journey has been amazing. I looked at my phone. It said September 28th. And I'm like, hey man, it's been seven years, man. Congratulations. And he just, he paused for a second. He goes, yeah, it has. Yeah. Anyway, what else are we talking about? And we went on to another topic. And, you know, Trevor, I'm not shocked that it happened. I'm, I think I think it's more of the, the way you went about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think as a comedian, I completely understand it. You know, you know, he is a traveler. He's, you know, he's a philosopher. You, that show, that chair, rather, any late night chair for any show can be a bit of a box if you want to go and do these other things and learn other things and discover other things. And if the, in the daily show, it's not like Conan where Conan could just go, fuck it. I'm going to Germany this week. We're doing shows from. Germany. Yeah. He eventually got to that point later on. I don't know that it was like that for the first, you know, of 20 years. Not. Of course not. But for it to remain interesting for Conan creatively, he started coming up with different ways, and also because networks was restricting and hating on my dog. But it it was something where he was allowed to evolve. And the Daily Show is the Daily Show. That car is the car. There's not really much that you can do to change that if you want to drive a truck. I'm sorry, the Daily Show. This is a car. You put a spoiler on it. You make it a convertible. You, you, know, you change up a little bit of it, but you're not going to be able to completely change the chassis and the functionality of that vehicle creatively to the degree that I think Trevor needed. And so, you know, I think that was probably the right thing for him to do because otherwise you're just sitting and you're bored and then you look like one of them animals in the zoo that doesn't, that shouldn't be locked up like that. So, you know, you know, so you, under, bottom, you understand where he where he was coming from a million um, times. A but million I like that I like that people uh, thought that you were actually pissed at him. I know uh, you got a lot of uh, <laughs> responses on on Twitter and stuff. People thought that that there was actually some beef. I, I think that as a correspondent, it's still your job to kind of mirror a little bit of what society thinks the issue is. You're or the what voice the, of the audience there. Boom, boom, and there are a lot of people who were mad, and that wasn't a joke for them, and so. If I could embody that a little bit, even if it's, you know, playfully, you know, like, you know, even if I have to pull, you know, do a leaper into it. Yeah. You were the only one to bring that up. Yeah. Shout out to Dua Lupita, who is not a real artist. <laughs> <laughs> that was hilarious. Yeah. But that day was, you know, myself and the writers just going, we have to talk about what's in the zeitgeist and what's in the now you know, right now. And unfortunately, you know, Trevor had already covered Russia and Ukraine. My opinion on Russia and Ukraine doesn't matter right now. <laughs> we have to talk about last week, bro. We just, we, we have to just, and it's the perfect place to mention it and be playful about it and then get back on with the show. Because I think what, what I don't want people to lose sight of in the midst of, you know, Trevor's decision is that there's still a fucking midterm election coming up, man. There's still a lot of serious issues that are dividing the country and that need to be resolved and that we need to bring attention to. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, it's time to get back to work. He stepped down. We made our jokes. It's time to clock in. You know, we're still going to Atlanta for midterms. And, you know, we're going to focus on a lot of issues that are going on there in Georgia. Correspondents are already getting their assignments. I got to get that kayak i'm sorry for cussing i normally don't cuss this much when i'm with you um but yeah like it's it's still full steam ahead 
on making a television show. The car is the car. And we'll figure out who the new drive, who the next driver is going to be. But the car is the car. And so it's still racing down the road. So that's what we're going to, you know, turn our focuses back to for now. Yeah. I mean, he, you know, the midterms coming up, he is going to stay through the midterms until I believe his last show is December 8th. And then Comedy yeah, Central said to confirm that the show is coming back on Comedy Central in January. Um, very quick turnaround there. Um, there's obviously when something like this happens, there's so much speculation about what happens next, who's going to host your name is getting thrown around a lot as a possible successor. Is that something that you would even want? I think if you're asked, you have to at least consider it. You can't say no to an opportunity like that. You know, you can't turn your nose up at it at least. You know, I think you have to sit and assess what you would want to do creatively, you know, and that's something I haven't thought about yet. You know, how would I design the car? Would I put a front wing on it? Would I put some fast and furious neon lights <laughs> under it? Would I tent the windows? You know, like that part of it and then figuring out creatively if that makes sense. Because I think beyond the daily show, there's I just think there's a bigger discussion to be had about what the fuck the next iteration of late night is going to be creatively. I think this is bigger than Trevor Noah. I think that we are at a creative molting, you know, as an industry. You know, whatever CBS decides to do in James Corden's slot, I imagine will not be a one-to-one to what James Corden did. That's going to be something totally different. I hope that Showtime, you know, with the departure of Deezus and Merrill, finds something else to put into that slot. I know they still have Z-Way which she's doing something completely different. Sam J stylistically is completely different. And low key, I feel like shows like that, those are the shows that were kind of the precursor of the creative molting that is starting to happen now. Amber Ruffin, you know, Amber Ruffin, I would throw in that hat as well. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see, but, you know, to have your name in a hat is an honor. Like, I'm not going to sit here and act like that's not a cool thing to have someone even consider that you even think that I could do it, but how would I do it? I haven't thought about that, but you're right. The thing is that ironically, the turnaround time is about neck and neck with the transition time from John to Trevor, which was six weeks. John's last day to Trevor's first day was six weeks. Now you lose two of those six for the holidays. (laughs) Yeah. That's not going to feel like six weeks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, creatively, you know, I have no idea what Comedy Central is going to do. You know, my job in the meantime is to just be a good ass correspondent, man. One thing I think is cool is that they have put out or they maybe they're doing this deliberately is really putting it out there that the all of the correspondents are being considered because of what happened last time when John left. Um, You know, people may or may not know this, but, you know, John Oliver had been filling in as host. I was writing about this a lot of the time, so I feel like I have a really (laughs) strong handle on it. But um, and ended up getting kind of poached by HBO and going away. Um, You know, I've talked to uh, Samantha B and Hassan Minhaj, who both told me that they were never considered. They weren't in the running. Nobody talked to them about possibly taking over even. Um, So it's, it does feel a little different this time, but does that, does that surprise you sort of how it was handled last time versus what we're seeing now? I wasn't there. I, I didn't come in till under Trevor, so I couldn't even give you the temperature of the building in those days and what those relationships were like. You know, right now, Jordan Klepper stands as the only on-air talent who served under both regimes. So, you know, that's probably more of a Klepper question. But, you know, for me, you know, I don't think they've asked anybody formally, hey, Roy, 
are you ready? What you think about it? Like <laughs> that conversation hasn't been had. I know what y'all read. Like I go to the building and I just do my job as a correspondent. My bigger question right now is what's going to happen with these couple of field pieces that I shot earlier, you know, a month or two ago that ain't aired yet. We need to get those yeah. shits on the air. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in terms of them considering the correspondence, I think that's a beautiful thing, you know, because all of the correspondents, myself, Klepper, Costa, Ronnie, Desi, Dulce, you know, I feel like we have a familiar, we already have a pre-installed relationship with the audience and late night is a relationship. And I think for sure, you know, having the correspondence be in the hat and having the correspondence be a part of the conversation, I think also helps to reassure the viewers. You know, John the Trevor was definitely a lot more tumultuous of an exchange of a transfer of power because people weren't completely familiar with Trevor. It well, was and, more... and John was such a big force. You know, he was such a, you know, powerful force on television. Yeah. And it's it's the only thing I can try to compare it to was Aaron Rodgers when he came in after Brett Favre. And it's like. When Trevor took over, the question was, who is Trevor Noah? The only question that will be asked now, I believe, in the transfer from Trevor to the next person is, can this person do the job? Because there will be some degree of familiarity. If we're talking about from the pool of correspondence. Yeah, it, unless, they go totally, unless they go totally rogue and, uh, and, okay, and hire someone if, we've never heard of. Okay, if they go totally rogue and it's someone that's a complete outsider, 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 that's a huge bet, you know, on the Paramount side. You know, I think I think regardless, it has to be, you know, a name someone knows or that we're familiar with. That would be my guess if I'm running a network, but I also have never run a fucking network before. So to sit and speculate, you know, for me, the biggest question is, you know, if I'm if I'm there you know, and I'm not the host, you know, then what does the role of correspondent evolve into or change into based on the next creative iteration per the creative direction that the host sets forward? So, you know, I'm more thinking about that, you know, if I'm being honest with you, bro, I'm I'm thinking a lot more about, okay, well, what does my job change into? And based you, you on think... the creative evolution of late night per all of the molting that's starting to happen across all the different channels. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about how you came in, you know, started the same day as Trevor basically. Right. And, and, and so would it be weird to stay on with a new host? I mean, only a, only a handful of people did that. You mentioned Klepper. Um, do you think, you know, Yeah. And Hassan, yeah, it would depend on the host. It would depend on the creative direction of the show. What are you trying to do? And then how do I fit into that? And does that creative direction fit my comedic skill sets and give me an opportunity to show who I am? Because I think the thing that that I'm always been appreciative of in the seven years that I've been on The Daily Show is that I've been able to do segments and pieces that match with my real life ideologies and my real life curiosities. I've never been told no when it was a weird thing that you might not think there's humor. My first two pieces, my first two pieces on the show was police reform and the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March. So, you know, you you literally, literally we pitched to Trevor, hey, I want to take a camera to the 20th anniversary of the Million Man March and talk to white people and talk to black people about racial progress. I think it'll be funny. I think 
also, I want to talk to a member of the Nation of Islam. And Trevor was like, cool, go do it. So when you look at when you look at that, everything that I like, if you look at my stand up, like if you look at my last three specials, the ideology of a lot of those jokes are things that could have been daily show segments. I really did meet a white person that is a tour guide at a black history museum. You got to respect a white person working at a black history museum. You got to respect that. That was a choice. <laughs> he white. He could work anywhere. He chose a black history museum. You know that job interview was a son of a bitch. <laughs> How many extra questions did he have to answer? Because you black and old, it ain't shit to work at a civil rights museum. You just walk in. Uh, that's me on the picture. And I did jokes about it on stage, but that very easily could have been a field piece. Sounds like a field piece. That's a walk and talk with a white person learning about black and teaching black history to black people. Like, so I would want to make sure that, you know, whatever I'm doing on television, and this is Daily Show and Beyond, like, I want to make sure that it's just something that equates to the things I find funny and the things that I'm curious about. Coming up, Roy reveals the unlikely inspiration for his most personal hour of stand-up yet. And he shares one idea for how he might cover Herschel Walker when The Daily Show heads to Atlanta for the midterms. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to my previous episode with Roy Wood Jr., as well as conversations with other Daily Show correspondents past and present, like Samantha Bee, Larry Wilmore, Jordan Klepper, Ronnie Chang, and more, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Roy Wood Jr. Um, I mean, obviously, it seems like Trevor said as much that he's part of the reason why he's leaving is to be able to tour more and do more stand-up. Um, you know, you're you're such a strong stand-up comedian as well. Do you feel like the show has held you back at all in terms of what you're able to do with stand-up? Because you've put out plenty of specials and you've you've done a lot of, of, of great stuff. No, but Trevor and I are in two different stratospheres, or two different <laughs> two different flight <laughs> patterns. 
Yeah. Like, You're not doing stadiums yet. I'm a domestic comedian. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, if I'm overseas, it's London with Yvonne Orgy or I'm doing USO tours and USO tours are much more insulated three week run. Like I'm not doing 70 cities, you know, and getting my passport stamped every day. You know, I did three hour specials in five years while working as a correspondent. The irony now, bro, is that I want to do less stand up. Like I want, well, let me take that back. I am trying to, not I'm trying. My therapist says, stop trying. They would <laughs> I am working on creating something that's a little bit more me centric in the topics. You know, something, you know, to a degree, Rothaniel, you know, beat me to the punch some, you know, and just something that's introspective. I really think that that's the most logical place for a comedian to go after they've analyzed the world is to analyze themselves. So, you know, that's going to take some time to unpack and put together. And so, you know, that that evolution, you know, because I didn't tour this year. I didn't tour most of 2022. I think I only did five or six proper road dates. And most of those were COVID makeups from 21. So, you know, this year it's been about, you know, just, you know, exploring other creative and scripts and selling movies and, and like getting what I consider to be, oh, this is, these are projects I need to capitalize on now. The road will always be there. But when you start trying to build something that's introspective, man, you can't do that shit fast. Not three hour specials in five years fast. So it's so interesting. Yeah. You, uh, the last time you were on this podcast, which was, I think, about a year and a half ago, you were talking about Chappelle's 846 special as sort of an inspiration yes. in terms of the in terms of the fast turnaround. And now you're talking about Gerard Carmichael's Rothaniel, which is so different, um, yeah. different kind of thing, different um, introspective, something that, as you said, takes time as opposed well, to something that you want to do a quick reaction to, to something. Well, we did the 846 with Imperfect Messenger. You know, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't Chappelle level 24 hours later, it's online, but two weeks is a pretty tight turn from shoot to air. Cause that's how you build the bridge. Cause the rift between good cop and bad cop and the argument, it just boils down to who had a good interaction with the police. That's all it boils down to. And if once a month you letting the nigga go, you are creating allies out the ass. <laughs> Cause that's who's gonna defend you at the next protest. Who you think gonna defend you at the next protest? You wouldn't even need all that Blue Lives Matter flag. Did you start letting niggas go free once a month? <laughs> we got to defund the police, abolish these police. Hang on, hang on now, baby, hang on. <laughs> I had some crack on me last Thursday. <laughs> My brother just let me go. Look, this is a nuanced conversation with a lot of layers to it. We just need to think about what our forefathers would have wanted. That's all I'm saying. So, you know, I've done that and that was about the world. So this next thing about myself, I really want to take my time and settle in on, you know, in the interim, you know, I have a dope like little comedy therapy show that I've been working in the city for a couple of, for about a year and a half during this time. And I'm going to tour that and that will be a much more collective experience with music and a live, live therapist, a licensed therapist. And we're all live on stage. Like, that will be the thing that I take out for like the next year and a half while locally in New York working out the deeper material and really figuring out the stuff that I want to talk about about my family. You know, I did Finding Your Roots earlier uh, this year and 
that show messed me up. The stuff that I found out about my family, like it's just I can't not not talk about this. Like, what were the things that be. What were the things that really hit you? Well, I and without getting into too much detail in it, like it basically we have these perceptions of our father, you know, of the men in our family. But then when you find out more truths about them and the things that made you can have a perception about your father, and then you find out new truths about him that reinform why he was the way he was, not only to you, but to all of his children. And then it makes you wonder how much of that is innately in you and how can you change that? You know, you as, as a father now, myself, I think that men are on a constant journey of parents as a whole, really, but I can only speak as a father. You're, you're on a constant journey of trying to unpack who you are while also trying to only give the best parts of yourself to your child without knowing where all of your emotional potholes are. So imagine going on a television show that does a deep dive into your family lineage that's so thorough that you can find every single pothole in most of the (laughs) men that you descended from going all the way back to the slave ships. So you got to go, you got to explore that. You have to have the conversations. You have to figure out who these people were. And then look at all of that at a granular level, then talk to all of your family members from your father's side and what they remember and what they knew. And what you are, what I'm essentially building is a picture of what our family was, what men were in our family, what those men went through, and using that to help better prepare my son for his life. That's, that's what I'm trying to dig. That's what I'm trying to dig for. And, you know, what I also found in the midst of that exploration, just even in the short time this year that I've been just kind of trying to put stuff together. Um, you know, my father died when I was 16. And so when you lose when you lose your father that early in life, whether you realize it or not, as a as a as a teenager into your twenties, there are so many people who substitute in as a parent or as a father for a day or for a month or like you seek leadership and guidance from so many different people. And so, you know, the lessons that I learn from those men, good or bad, that is also an exploration, which is separate and apart from the family thing. Like in my head, I'm like, this is two separate shows. I don't even know which one to do first, but, <laughs> but those lessons and like, that's funny stories. I'll tell you another special that, um, that shifted my gears this year is uh, Ali Sadiq, The Domino Effect which went straight to YouTube and Ali just put that out straight for the people. He didn't even bother with distributors. None of that. And to me, it's one of the best stand-up specials of 2022. And the way that he tells stories and the story informs you of who he is as a person. He never has to make a declarative statement. You learn the lesson that he learned by listening to the story. And so I think there's a degree of, me being able to use storytelling in a way that can better inform myself and the audience of why I hold particular values. And a lot of the values that I was given were not from my father because he was dead when I was 16. So where did I get those values from? Where did I get this tendency from? You know, those, those particular, those particular things, you know, like I remember, I remember opening for a comedian, uh, William, William E. Gilmore, in Tallahassee, and he's, he's kind of a mentor, you know, for me in my first couple of years. And I remember, <laughs> I remember when we would be on the road, he would always stop at CVS and get a toy or get some 
card or something for either his, he'd get something either for his wife or his kid every time he was on the road. And I'm 21, 22. Why are we in this store, man? And then I had a child. And then I had a child who was old enough to miss me when I'm gone. And I get it now. I get it. And he created a way for his child to look forward to his return instead of being disappointed about his departure. And that's a lesson I couldn't have got at 20. But you planted the seed. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's moments like that that I'm starting to reflect upon, you know, because when I had my son and you start thinking about all of the lessons that you're going to teach him, you start thinking about all of the lessons that your father taught you. And I don't have as many as most because he died so early. So then I started thinking about, all right, well, I'm going to teach him this. Well, damn, where did I learn that from? Oh, damn, he did teach me how to. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Well, who told me about that? Oh, yeah, it was him. And so it was just this, this, this realization that, you know, there's a lot of lessons that I learned from a lot of men that came in and out of my life, and a lot of them have passed now. And I think that there's something to that. And for me, that's more exciting now. I'm more excited to try and unpack that on stage than I am gun control or abortion rights or prison. Yeah, I mean, you've done so I, much of that in your in your other specials and uh, and on the three Daily specials Show. Worth of racism, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will say all of this talk about about fatherhood um, does make me think that you're uniquely. Um, in a good position to go down to Georgia and cover this Herschel Walker story. I don't know if that's your assignment, but, uh, but it should be. Yeah. yeah I, we should go down and I would love to just pluck a piece of Herschel Walker's hair and just <laughs> <laughs> do a little finding your roots. Yeah, yeah. Call my mama. You wouldn't fucking know Dallas Cowboys. would you? <laughs> You sure? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that story is is a wild one, and um, yeah. Walker, man, like the, I wish that the left would 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 understand though that we're past embarrassment being an effective. We're past embarrassment being an effective tool of political discourse. You're not gonna embarrass Herschel Walker into conceding because you caught him in a lie if anything he'll lean into it i bet you i I heard some statistic that he raised more money on the day that it came out (laughs) you know so that makes politics is so divided in this country now and conversations are so hardcore left and so hardcore right that you're not going to get someone on one side of an issue you know, to completely, you know, change on anything any more than you're going to spit some facts about Biden or Biden's inefficiency or Biden didn't get this done. You think that's going to flip somebody that's really hardcore leftist? It's not because they know the other option is someone that they would never vote for. Yeah. So what, what does what does change people's mind or is it just completely impossible now? I think right now it's impossible. I think both sides have to concede that the other side has made a couple good points here and there. But that's seen as admitting that you're wrong. And we can never do that as a political base. We can never admit that. Well, they do have a point about this part of the thing. It's just also there's so many so many lies, manipulation and bots and like it just the water it's so easy to pollute the water through social media as well. Like, you know, algorithms and, you know, you can convince someone that the CRT argument is about 
ending the and and we trying to get the white we trying to indoctrinate the kids and the sexuality by talking gender in the school so once someone believes that and once they're down that facebook rabbit hole how do you get them back i I mean you know you can make liberal news media more centrist you can make political satire shows a little more centrist but at the end of the day those places aren't the only places that people get their information now And the places where you get your information from tend to skew a lot less centrist than the news media that you watch. So I just think that, you know, political satire, you know, has to a degree it has to it has become something that has mirrored, you know, the views of a lot of the voters. You know, and I think that Jon Stewart had, you know, the flexibility of the lack of saturation of the market as well. So it could be a place that was more of a political catch-all. Same thing with Colbert Report. And so it was a place that was, it was political satire in a time that was a lot less divisive. And I think that whatever, whatever the next shows are within the world of political satire across whatever networks, um, we've got to figure out a way to be a bridge. We got to figure out a way to use humor as a bridge. And, you know, I don't know if that means making a show, you know, more centrist or if it's having on, you know, the oppo guests from time to time, you know, but you have to figure out a way to entertain that in a way that where you have a conversation that makes sense. But then you try that and then you book Kanye and then you have to not release the episode because <laughs> he was wilding, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's it's hard it's hard to say, man. You know because it, uh, yeah, how the question and I think the responsibility that the news media has to a degree is how much of this is actual discourse and legitimate conversation, and how much of this is corrosive and destructive to the stability of our democracy. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, and if it's destructive to the stability of our democracy, whatever joke you have, it ain't worth it whatever conversation there is to be had to me isn't worth it. Yeah. Well, if if you end up getting the daily show or any other show, these are going to be some, some tough uh, questions that you're going to have to deal with. (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't know how you, I don't know how you have, you know, and Trevor's had people on that have definitely been on the other end of the political spectrum, you know, know, probably I'd say Tommy Lahren was probably the most extreme, you know? Yeah. And he got a lot of backlash for that. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, But I feel like you have to have some of that to a degree if you're going to have a show that is, at the end of the day, trying to make everybody laugh. Let's not forget, all these shows are just trying to make people laugh. And you still have to expose the bullshit people, you know. So what I want to do with our our last bit of time here is our segment called The First Laugh. Um, So I'm going to run through some of these uh, first that we didn't get to talk about um, the last time you were on the show. Um, And starting with, do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh? The first time that I knew I had the ability. Uh, Baseball, high school baseball, I wrote the bench. Um, And my job was to heckle the other team. Like your job as a bench warmer is to heckle the other team. It yeah, to, and you were, you were good at that? Say, oh, I would write stuff in class during <laughs> the day and would bring it to the field. And we would we would sit 
and watch your mom drop you off for the game. And then we would attack the type of car your mom drives for <laughs> four innings straight. Like anything to mentally take you off your square and force you into making a mistake on the field. That was my job. So, you know, myself and the other bench warmers, we would yell stuff across the field at these teams. And every now and then, if you got a parent to chuckle, or if you got a parent on the other team to laugh, that's a solid laugh. Like, that's a solid day. And if you could get the umpire to call timeout to take a break, that's a standing ovation. <laughs> like, if you say something so wild, and it's, you know, it's stuff I can never repeat. Now, different times. But, like, <laughs> if you would ever, the idea of using thoughts and humor to manipulate the behaviors of another individual. I would say the first time that I attempted that was baseball, it was high school baseball specifically. And that's when I was like, oh, huh, maybe there's something to do this. And then I started watching stand-up on, um, on Comedy Central, and that's when the idea doing stand-up entered my mind, but it would be college before I even attempted it. Yeah. Or even, what, was or that even very, saw. what was that very first time you got up to, to do stand-up like? How did it go? It was okay. It was okay. The second time was terrible, but that first time was good, man. I took a bus. I took a Greyhound from Tallahassee back home to Birmingham. I didn't want to bomb at an open mic in Tallahassee where I was in college. So I took a, a Greyhound bus back to Birmingham and went to the comedy club Stardome in, um, out in Hoover and did good enough, did good enough to believe that I could do it a second time. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah, the second time was terrible. And by the third or fourth time, the next thing I know, I'm in a CVS with a grown man and he's buying a water gun <laughs> to mail back home to his son. <laughs> uh, do you remember the first joke you wrote that you told that really worked, that you could keep going back to and that, that you felt like, oh, I might have something here? Um, it was a joke about the weatherman and the weather maps and why is purple colder than white? Who decided <laughs> that purple is a color that is colder than white. Every time you see Minnesota on a map, it's purple. Oh, wait, that's because Prince lives there. <laughs> waka, waka, waka. And I, knew, that, I knew the Prince the Prince punchline was coming. Yeah, like that That was the first joke I was like really proud of. I was like, yeah. I still have that one written down in my first joke book. I still have all my joke books. Um, do you have a, a quick story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now? but really was not funny when it happened. Well, I got booed repeatedly. Um, I came to New York one year, the first time I ever came to New York. Um, and there was a club on 73rd Street called The Triad. And I went up, I bombed. And then I went back and I sat down to watch the rest of the show because I had nowhere else to go. I didn't know anybody in the city. And I still considered myself, I still do, a student of the craft. So I sucked. Let me sit here and watch every other comedian and see why they are better than me. And as I'm sitting there watching the show, someone just walks by. It's like an hour into the show. Someone just walks by and looks down at me. And then they just whispers to the person. Went, he didn't even leave. I, res <laughs> I respect that. <laughs> uh, and then there's also the time I bombed at Uptown Comedy Corner in Atlanta. But the club was crowded. and I didn't have anywhere to sit. And I was sitting in the waitress's section. And she demanded that I buy two drinks because I was taking up her section. I said, ma'am, I said, no, no, I don't have to buy two drinks. I'm one of the comedians. She said, you were not no comedian tonight. <laughs> you didn't earn those. You didn't earn the right to not yeah, buy drinks. I didn't earn the right to not buy drinks. I bombed so bad. Two Crown and Cokes, please, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, do you have a, a story or memory about the first time you met one of your comedy heroes, uh, someone who you just really looked up to in the comedy world and what it was like to meet them for the first time? I opened for Sinbad in Asheville, North Carolina uh, at a Rick and Bubba comedy show at a retreat. And that still stands as one of the greatest moments of my career. I, I've had so much admiration for him. And he was, he was one of the reasons that I got into stand-up. And to have met him was absolutely amazing. Yeah. Did he live up to to what you imagined? It was amazing, man. He did like 90 minutes of just fire. And the stories you've heard of him doing an hour of fire and then coming back out and doing another hour for no reason. like. (laughs) And a lot of of improvised uh, stuff too, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and a lot of people, I think, you know, with Sinbad, you know, he did a Caribbean soul music festival with comedy. I think a lot of people forget that to a degree, that was a precursor to Dave Chappelle's block party. We were talking about mixing comedy with music that was popular and artists of the time and making it this really dope, cool, inclusive experience for black people. Sinbad was doing that in the 90s. And he got there first. Yeah. And this is pre-Def Jam, you know, this is post-Def Jam. And, you know, this man, you know, I can't say enough good things about him. That was, that was one, that was one, you know, George Wallace, but it's, it's weird because I actually know George Wallace and have a relationship. Like we can text, like George Wallace was the first comedian. I used to open for him when he came to Birmingham. And then when I finally moved to New York and he would be at the comedy cellar and he would be sitting there with Jerry and Chris Rock and, and Ray Romano, just beast. George Wallace would call me over and talk comedy with me for a couple of sentences. You know, and I would never sit down, just disrespect to the other <laughs> names. But he was one of the greats I looked up to who also made me feel like I was part of the fraternity now. Yeah, that's you know, cool. George Wallace never high-sided. He never puts up a barrier of unapproachability, you know, and stuff like that. But, yeah, man, Sinbad. And I lost the picture. I met that man and took a picture with him and I fucking lost it. And I and I've gone through every thirty-five mil negative that I own is gone. Yeah, you it's gotta gone. meet him again. And the only other person who I know who has the has a copy of that photo, I'm sure she's destroyed it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a bit of a bad boyfriend. Yeah. Um, uh <laughs> Um, finally, I like to end episodes by asking uh, comedians what's making them laugh right now. Uh, is there anything you've seen recently that really made you laugh or, or something you want to shout Ooh. out? You mentioned Ali Sadiq, Ooh. so you got that one in. That was that was a good one. Yeah, Ali Sadiq special is solid. Um, I I really enjoy right now what the eighty five South show is doing. You know, you know, these three brothers, Chico Bean, Carlos Miller, and DC Young Fly, like they have figured out a way to Power Ranger Voltron together and just form this live show experience that is just to me one of the better live shows touring right now. You know, dollar for dollar. And I gotta start being more prepared for this question because this is a <laughs> question that comes up all the time and there's so many dope, funny people that are just on the right. Brian Simpson. Yeah. Brian Simpson. Yeah, that uh Netflix uh half hour. That boy really coming. good. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that motherfucker. I went to writing. 
I don't want to meet. <laughs> I don't want to meet him. I'm like, you get the fuck away from me. I got to go write jokes because you coming for everybody's money. Yeah, that's a good compliment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Brian yeah. Simpson. So yeah, give me 85 South from Brian Simpson right now, and I'm sure by the time you sign off on this podcast, I'll have one more name. <laughs> um, Paris well, Sachet. There it is. Damn, sorry about that, Paris. <laughs> uh well Roy thank you so much it's always so fun to talk to you and um yeah I'll be very curious to see what happens next on the daily show yes sir well thank you man maybe we can talk about it again yeah we'll do man all right thank you again to Roy Wood Jr for that great conversation and we shall see what happens with the future of the daily show In the meantime, you can still catch him regularly on that show, as well as on his two podcasts, The Daily Show's Beyond the Scenes and Roy's Job Fair. And if you still have not seen his most recent stand-up special, Imperfect Messenger, it is available to stream on Paramount+, and it is fantastic. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude. You can find it on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.